0: I was really frustrated by the amount of toilet paper that I saw just sort of discarded on the ground in this really fragile alpine environment. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. The person you just heard is Anastasia Allison. She's the founder of Kula Cloth, which is one of our sponsors for this episode. Kula Cloth got started because Anastasia wanted to find a better option than using all this toilet paper when you're out in nature. And so I went home and I did some research and I came across an article where a woman was talking about using a bandana as a pea cloth. And I think my first reaction to that was, oh, my gosh, that's disgusting. But she tried it out anyway. And to her surprise, the bandana was great. She still used normal toilet paper for number two, but for just peeing, this was a game changer. So she decided to design a pee cloth that was a real piece of gear, something intentional, something people could get excited about. And thus, Kula Cloth was born. For 10% off your order, go to KulaCloth.com and enter the promo code OUTTHERE at checkout. That's K-U-L-A cloth cloth. Dot .com promo code out there. When we talk about adventure, we often think of extreme endeavors, summiting mountains, surviving in the wilderness, sailing around the world. But what is it that makes those things adventures? What actually is an adventure? And why do some of us seek them out more than others? Today, we're going to talk with a person who, for most of his life, defined adventure in the traditional sense. He cycled around the world. He traveled in the Arctic. He rode across the Atlantic Ocean. You get the idea. He's the kind of guy who built his entire life around difficult athletic pursuits. So much so that adventure is the backbone of his very identity. Just listen to the way he introduces himself.
1: My name's Alistair Humphreys. I'm an adventurer and an author um, based in England.
0: An adventurer and an author. Adventurer is the first thing he says about himself. But recently, he started thinking differently about what adventure means. A few years ago, he set off on a journey across Spain that was unlike any of his previous feats the trip was both gentler and scarier than anything he'd done before. He wrote about the experience in his new book, which is called My Midsummer Morning, and he joins us today to talk about it.
1: What I realised was that I've spent about 20 years now, I'm getting old, 20 years chasing traditional adventures of travelling to far-off places and doing physical challenges and suffering and all that fun stuff of normal adventure. And what I slowly started to realise was that if I just kept, I was quite good at this stuff, I'd been doing it for 20 years and actually to continue with those sort of expeditions in many ways isn't actually adventurous, it's kind of in my own way just being in a rut and a comfort zone and taking the easy option because I've been doing that for so long. So I wanted to try and find a fresh way to get back to the feelings I used to have when I started camping and cycling for the first time, Those, those feelings of doubt and uncertainty and fearing failure and not having a clue what you're doing and the novelty and the surprise and the the excitement that comes with all of that. So I wanted to try and find a way to get all of those things and I realised that to do that I needed to find something new, something totally different. So I thought about what really scares me and I'm terrible at sort of, well, I hate singing karaoke dancing at weddings, I haven't been to a nightclub in many a year, anything kind of performance based, I hate. Um, (laughs) And that includes playing music. But my um, favourite ever travel book is called As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning, about a young English guy who in the 1930s walked through Spain playing his violin to to pay for his adventure. And I've always loved that book, but I've always wimped out of doing it myself because the idea of playing the violin in public just terrified me so much so I realized that that was what I needed to do to go scare myself I had to learn the violin and go try and walk through Spain and to put some um, to put some some real skin in the game I decided to do it with no credit card or money or not leave my wallet behind and I had to entirely depend upon my musical skills for a for a month walking about 500 miles through northwest Spain following the route of this old book
0: so it's so it's interesting. It, it's you. You said you wanted to scare yourself. Um, so most people don't want to scare themselves. Why did you want to do something? I mean, why did you do something that was intentionally harder than it needed to be?
1: Um, well, I think if I'd said I wanted to challenge myself, I don't think you'd have called me out on that. Because I think I think I imagine a lot of people you speak to in the adventurous world are looking to challenge themselves and. Push their limits and and see what they're capable of and explore that grey area, the limits of what they know about themselves. So I think really that's what I was trying to do. I wasn't just it wasn't just full on masochism of oh I want to go scare myself, but but I do enjoy in a weird way doing things that scare me um, because of how I feel after having done that and hopefully come through it intact. So yeah, I wanted a challenge. How about that? Is that an acceptable answer?
0: <laughs> well, but so say more about that feeling of how you feel after, like when you when you've lived through something scary.
1: Um I was actually writing about this today and and what I was start, what I wrote was um I wrote a paragraph about say when I was about 15, the first adventure I did was cycling from one side of England to the other, which isn't very far. It took about five days as a teenager but i remember at the time that was the biggest adventure of my life um and then a few years later i did a bigger bike trip and that was the biggest adventure of my life and i do a lot of um talks now so i remember the first talk i did which was literally in somebody's front room with like three rows of chairs from the kitchen for about 20 people and cups of tea and biscuits and i remember that terrified me so each of these steps things that at the time seem enormous and daunting and overwhelming I look back on them now and I think, ah, oh, that was easy. I find that looking back at the, what the, um, the places that I've come from helps encourage me to think, wow, it was all right then and it came out good. So try something new that seems scary now and looking back at some point later in your life, you'll be pleased for this. So I seem to base quite a lot of my life on doing stuff based on the hope of retrospective pleasures. <laughs> that at some, uh, at some unknown point in a unknowable future, all of this somehow makes me feel... happy and fulfilled
0: so in hopes of rekindling that sense of challenge that excitement that comes with doing something new and difficult and scary Alistair set out to walk across Spain without any money the idea was that he would play his violin in public squares and on street corners and hopefully make enough money to buy food Which all sounds well and good, except that Alistair was not a violinist. But he figured he could learn, so he signed up for violin
1: lessons. I ended up doing lessons with this teacher for seven months. So I had seven months of lessons. I practiced hard, but I really, and I think I thought I'd be quite good after seven months, but I really (laughs) underestimated quite how hard the violin was or how bad I am. So, so
0: you were not a prodigy at the violin.
1: <laughs> I was not, and I'm not. And actually, I've got my violin here. Would you like me to play you a song that might uh, set the tone?
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes, please yeah. do. <laughs> right,
1: hang on. I thought, because it's really, you know, normally, especially British people, when you say, oh, I'm not very good at the violin, you assume that actually that means they're brilliant. <laughs> uh, just, being, just being British and modest. Uh, but let me, let me uh, well, you, you can decide. Right. <laughs> See if you can recognize the tune. How was that? Pretty bad. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, bear in mind that that performance was is after the trip and having been playing every day for for uh, the month through Spain. So I arrived in Spain and I had money to get there. But the first morning, I emptied my pockets, of my final coins. I remember piling them up on a park bench and walking away. And I've spent quite a lot of time in my life being sort of dirtbag, hobo, not much money, kind of poor. But I've always had money. This was the first time I'd had nothing. And, um, and it was a really unsettling experience to just walk into town with nothing and think, wow, if I'm going to eat in the next month, I need to get out my violin and play and see what happens.
0: And so that first time when you did that, When you walked into a town and started playing, how did that go?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, I kept procrastinating for a couple of hours. I kept just walking around thinking, oh, this plaza's not quite right. Look at that plaza. Oh, look at that plaza. And when I finally found a plaza that was good, someone was already playing the music there. So I was like, oh, someone who actually knew how to play. So I had to go elsewhere and find a plaza and say, come on, it's time to get on with this. And I, as I set up my instruments and fiddling around, I was sweating. I was so nervous. I started to play and I just felt I just wanted the earth to open up and swallow me whole. I was just so embarrassed. So nearly everyone just walked past ignoring me. Some people looked at me in astonishment of, wow, you're really bad and That was it. And they just kept on walking past and I was playing and playing, thinking, this is never going to work. (laughs) This is the worst idea I've ever had in my life. And uh, I played for a few hours and I was just thinking, this is an absolute disaster. Um, You played for a
0: few hours and nobody gave you any money.
1: Yeah, I'd guess probably two hours, probably. No that's a long time yeah especially when you can only play five songs and you've heard one of my you've heard one of my songs in its entirety so <laughs> so
0: you're just playing all of these on repeat yeah and nobody's nobody and everybody's just walking by you
1: walking by me or frowning or some, quite, some people laughing <laughs> but in all in a kind of nice way it was uh, but just uh, i just you know why would you give someone money when he's that bad but there was a gentle there was a park bench near where I was sitting there were quite a few old people just sitting on it watching the world go by and they'd get up and leave And but one man had been sitting there for ages watching he had dark glasses on and a walking cane and sort of old tweed coat and he sat there for ages and eventually sort of leaned on his stick and stood up and started walking towards me and I I really thought oh no he's going to say senor we've had enough please go away this is ridiculous you're ruining <laughs> our peace um But he didn't say that. Instead, he reached into his pocket and he gave me a coin, my very first coin. And that was just this astonishing release of thinking, wow, I've done it. I've actually earned a coin. Uh, I'm now a professional musician. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And of course, like, like all sorts of things in life, once you've done it once, then you know you can do it. A second time, and so he just filled me with just hope and enthusiasm, and, and I thought, and I just started soaring away with with extra effort, um, and uh, and yeah, that really sort of broke broke my fear.
0: Was it still scary the next time, though?
1: It was always scary, just because it's really embarrassing to stand up and have lots of people look at you and laugh at you. <laughs> So I always got nervous, but less so each time, but also really importantly, I began to enjoy the fear and enjoy the embarrassment and enjoy the doubt of thinking, will I eat, will I eat today? And to start to find the whole thing quite thrilling and um, amusing. I'm quite a masochist, I think. Like, well, like I guess like a lot of people who like ultra running or writing books or quitting your job to start a podcast there's this there's a a kind of a masochistic fascination in wondering what might happen to yourself if you commit to doing something stupid and new
0: do you think it's sort of a universal urge that all of us have this 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 attempt to make things harder than they need to be because I mean, I think you know a lot of us do this in our careers or other aspects of daily life, where we, you know, we 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 could take the easy way out, but we don't. We try to make things as hard as possible. So, is there? I mean, is that something that's sort of inherent to being human? Do you think?
1: Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's probably common amongst. Everyone who listens to your podcast, but I think I think there's probably a huge vast swathes of the world who just think the kind of people you speak to are just ridiculous and have no interest in so no i don't I don't think that's common at all. I think most people want to have a normal, comfortable, relatively easy life. I think the times when we do try and make things hard for ourselves are often linked up with um ego and ambition i suppose in terms of people trying to push themselves hard at work i think that's often about um ambition uh, or personal fulfillment of ambition trying to be better than someone else but no i don't i don't think it's a common thing i think we're the weirdos
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you very much i'll add that to my resume i am a professional weirdo <laughs> yes <laughs> oh. After the break, we'll talk about what Alistair's trip was like on a day to day level, and we'll explore whether an adventure like this could have the unintended consequence of glorifying poverty. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this episode comes from Simple Habit, a meditation app that provides stress relief for busy people. Ian Young is in charge of marketing for Simple Habit, and he says what sets Simple Habit apart from other meditation apps is that it caters to very specific situations. Like if you're going through a a health issue and um, it might be a fertility issue and it might be getting pregnant and having um, your sort of thoughts and fears around um, IVF appointments. That's just one example of something super, super, super specific that uh, our premium subscription would be able to unlock and you'd be able to search for and find content for something so specific. So Ian mentioned the premium subscription. Simple Habit is available for free, but to access their whole library of meditation sessions, sign up for premium. Right now, you can get 30% off a premium subscription by going to simplehabit.com slash out there. That's simplehabit.com/ out there. And now back to our conversation with Alistair Humphreys. So tell me about a typical day on this on this journey. I mean, obviously, your whole day wasn't spent playing music.:
1: No, it was, so it's a combination of normal adventure travel stuff and then violining, and I find, found that contrast interesting. so a normal day would be I'd wake up at sunrise, up in the hills, in my bivy bag, in a wood or on a hilltop, and then it would be a normal day of a hiking trip. So I'd get up, walk quite a long way through rocky hillsides or wheat fields, and that side of things felt very familiar for me. That was almost like me doing my day job, sleep in the hills, walk a long way, cook on a fire. For a lot of people, that would be a big adventure. But because I've done that sort of stuff so often, that was just easy and normal for me. It was hot and tiring, but it was mentally quite easy. And the twist then came that most days or every two days, I'd have to uh, make sure my route went through a village or a small town big enough to stand in the town square and play. And what I noticed is that Spanish people like to spend a lot of time sleeping. So there are actually very... (laughs) There are actually very few hours of the day when anyone's out and about in Spanish uh, towns. So really, I had to arrive in the town for the hour or two around lunch when people go out to the shops and the market and buy their lunch things. After that, the place is dead until dusk. I'd play for usually a couple of hours till I got tired and or had enough cash for the next couple of days, which is usually, say, three or four euros. And then I'd walk out of town and find some nice... Beautiful field or wood to sleep in for the night, um, but I actually earned far more money than I thought I did. I mean, over a month I earned one hundred and twenty euros, um, which is more money than any man needs in a month of life. So I could live. I could buy bananas and bread and a couple of tomatoes. Um,
0: were there days where you didn't earn anything and you had to go hungry?
1: There were often times when I'd arrive in a place. And my heart would sink because I could just immediately see that this this place is too small. There's no one's going to be out here or there's no central plaza. There's no kind of community base to this place. So there's not going to be enough people walking by. And then what I'd do then was just go on to half rations and double miles to try and zoom on a few miles down the road to find another town. Um, But no, every single town I earned something. It was an amazing exercise in just having to open yourself up to the random kindness of the world. People who don't know you at all, who you'll never see again, who know nothing about you. I was just having to rely on them and yet hopefully trying to do it without actually begging. I felt that I was working by playing my violin even though I was very bad at it. It felt important that I was actually making an effort to to earn that money.
0: How did it feel to earn money in such a concrete kind of manner? Because I think a lot of us who do sort of more white collar work, you know, you you're, it's not you're getting paid hourly or you're getting paid annually or, you know, it's not it's not a you don't see this direct cause and effect of your efforts and The money that
1: you earn from them um
0: how did it feel like earning money that way
1: i loved it it was thrilling i mean it it, i'm really i'm not very interested in money in my normal life as long as there's more money in my coming into my bank than going out i basically pay no attention to my to my money in my life Uh, but this was very much very much brought out the greed in me of thinking wow if i get if i get because i even a couple of days uh, as i start later on start to be able to afford enough for a little espresso one euro coffee in a cafe which had two dual benefits um one it gave me an excuse to sit in a dark cafe for three or four hours and hide from the heat of the sun and second it gave me a chance to charge up all my cameras because i was um filming the trip so w- when I got to the state, if I got to a town and earned enough that tipped me over to maybe, oh, if I can just earn one more coin, I might be able to buy a coffee today. Um, certainly teaches an appreciation of that coffee that I don't have back home, where I just think, oh, yeah, I'll get a coffee, oh, a okay. cake, and and it just there's certainly much more appreciation for things when you're trying to decide: shall I today have a cup of coffee, or shall I buy two extra tomatoes <laughs> for my evening meal tonight? And I really enjoyed that simplicity of the experience. Simplicity is always something I enjoy on all the travel. It's one of the main things I enjoy about being out away from the so-called normal world for a while. But on that trip, it was very, very much a simple cause and effect between if I play long enough and people are nice enough, I can have a tomato tonight. And and that's a a nice way of living for a while. Although having said that, sorry, just one last thing. I w- I don't want to um, I wouldn't want to idle, so sort of paint a sort of overly rosy picture on it because of course it's much nicer to have my life at home, whereby I can basically buy as many tomatoes as I want whenever I want. So I'm not I'm not trying to um, make it sound that it's wonderful to have no money, but it's nice to appreciate it briefly in life.
0: Well, and I was going to ask about that because uh, you know it 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 does. The whole premise of this trip feels very much like a, a like a privileged white person thing to do, you know, um, where like you have you, you've you sort of artificially created this this um, scenario of being penniless every day. But of course, you have a security net back home. You know, if things really went south, you could go home and you have a bank account and it would be fine. Um, and so I wonder, um, you know whether it's whether like do you worry about sort of romanticizing being penniless and living hand to mouth?
1: Um I completely agree. I've always been very, very aware that everything I do is an artificial game. My life back home is simple and comfortable and therefore perhaps a bit boring. And so to spice it up, I go off and do stupid challenges. Uh, The same applies to every single expedition thing anyone does. I I rode across the Atlantic Ocean, which is considerably more expensive than taking an airplane would have been or... um, Why climb El Capitan without a rope when you could do it with a rope or even better walk around the back? So I'm very aware that everything in the adventure expedition world is a artificial way of getting that getting those feelings. Um, But in terms of the specifics of money, there was one morning that really made me think a lot about this because I was in a a much bigger town than I was usually in. And on the main shopping street, there were quite a lot of homeless people um, begging for money. And um, you know, the Spain's economic crisis of the last 10 years, plus the influx of uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe and the Middle East means there were a lot of beggars and homeless people. And I was really conscious that day of what am I doing here? I'm playing, pretending at being poor. Um, so, yeah, I was very much aware of that. And I, I would stand guilty as charged to, to any of those accusations, except say that, yeah, I, I acknowledge it. I was playing at being poor for a month. The plus side of it is it teaches you briefly to pay attention to things more in your life and they're supposed to be grateful of your normal position.
0: Mm. So what was your takeaway from this whole uh, endeavor?
1: There were quite a lot from different aspects. Um, For example, there was that day of extreme gratitude that I was playing at having to beg for my food rather than my country's economy had gone so disastrously wrong that I was jobless and homeless. Um, I realized the notion of redefining adventure as an, as an individual. So for each of us to think what adventure means to us and define it ourselves rather than the usual kind of formula of, ah, adventure equals hiking, tent, Sleepy on the summit, come back home, put it on Instagram. So getting a very different perspective on what adventure felt to me at this stage in my life, I think was a really um, probably the most useful lesson from the whole thing. And then it was also just a reaffirming of something which I've seen time and again from years and years and years and years of traveling around the world is that wherever you go in the world, the people you meet are good and kind and decent, and if you put yourself out into an unusual place doing something unusual and interesting, people respond to that. And the kindness I met in Spain um, is it didn't surprise me a bit because I've experienced that on all the trips I've ever done. So it's always nice to be reminded that the world is a good place.
0: What do you hope readers will take away from your book? <sighs>
1: Um, Well, it's actually a very different book to all the other travel books I've ever written. Um, I've written quite a few books, which are basically on the long lines of guy goes off in the world, has an adventure, isn't life great and exciting. (laughs) And, And much of what I've done, do on the internet, YouTube and all that sort of stuff is along those lines of, look, there's great adventures, off you go. This book was very different in that for the first time, I was quite honest about my struggles in life between trying to be cheerful adventure guy and off in the world doing adventures whilst also trying to be a good husband and a stay-at-home and present dad and that conflict between who I felt I sort of ought to be if I'm supposed to be an adventurer versus who I ought to be if I'm a dad and a husband and that huge conflict between those two very different ways of life um meant that I'd been really struggling for a few years of what on earth what on earth is the right thing to be doing in my life and uh, the Spain walk was quite a cathartic experience of processing the different phases and sections of my life. So the feedback I've had from the book is that the c- people who are in that sort of situation of a parent but also a, a vagabond at heart and that guilty conflict have hopefully found it an interesting book.
0: Mm. Well and that, I thought that was some of the most interesting to me was was your your discussion of fatherhood and and sort of how scary that was you know when you came, became a parent at first and 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 didn't know how to balance parenthood with you know a life of of adventure and freedom
1: I think i'm probably not the first person to underestimate the impact of parenthood (laughs) um but what i really struggled with is because adventure has become well it's been my hobby for all my adult life and then my real passion and then for the last i don't know 10 or whatever years it's become my job as well it's just become everything i just feel like i'm Alistair Humphreys, adventurer. So whether that's my work, my weekends, my hobbies, the books I read, the th- my friends, everything is that world. And suddenly the world I'd built up in that side was completely incompatible with this new world, which is, crikey, we've got a tiny little baby in the building. What the heck happens now? And feeling that I wanted to do that part of my life proper justice as well. And uh, I the the mistake, the big mistake I made was trying to do... The adventure side in the way that I'd always done it and that was really what ultimately led at the start of the conversation we talked about how my defining of living adventurously evolved and one of the mistakes I made for the first x years of being a parent was thinking that adventure could only count if it involved really tough big macho off round the world nearly dying type of stuff Um, so that was what began my process in my head of trying to think about what does living adventurously mean at this changed period of my life. I think, you know, in terms of the trip, it was, I look back on it now as being one of the two or three best adventures of my entire life. And that big change for me to now feel that... This is this was a huge adventure, even though it wasn't particularly physically tough or that remote, or and it certainly wasn't dangerous. And as you say, I was only playing. You know, if the worst thing that could have happened on this trip was I'd have got so hungry that I'd have fainted in a police station, and they'd have phoned the British Embassy, and someone would have taken me home, and I'd have had a cup of tea. So, I, I yeah, despite all that, it feels like a really great adventure for me. Mm. And perhaps then that might give other people who are listening ideas of what they can do that feels like a massive adventure to them, regardless of what Instagram defines an adventure to be these days.
0: Well, thank you so much for, uh, for talking with me today. This has been really fun.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I was honoured to be well, I was I was gonna say honoured to be invited. I was honored to pester you so much that you relented and had me on. So <laughs> I, <laughs> let's pretend I was invited, I'll make me feel much better.
0: Well, thanks for doing the pestering. This has been quite enjoyable. <laughs>
1: yeah, I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you.
0: Alistair Humphreys is an adventurer and author from the UK. His book is called My Midsummer Morning, and you can find a link to that at our website, outtherepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the link with a friend. We're always looking for new listeners, and your recommendation is our best form of advertising. Support for this episode comes from Kula Cloth, making personal hygiene in the outdoors comfortable and sanitary. So I've been using pea cloths for years now. But I have to admit, when I first heard about Kula Cloth, I was skeptical. I couldn't imagine that it could be that much better than just any old bandana. Turns out I was mistaken. The Kula Cloth really is a step up. The waterproof backing means my fingers never get wet— there's reflective stitching on it, so you can easily find it at night if you get out of your tent to pee. And it folds up in such a way that it doesn't get dirty when you hang it on your pack. For 10% off your order, go to kulacloth.com and enter the promo code OUTTHERE at checkout. That's K U L A cloth.com, promo code OUTTHERE. A big thank you to Molly Caneen, Charlotte Saru, Brittany Charm, Robin Bagley, and Cheryl Imoto for their financial contributions to Out There. I am not exaggerating when I say that we couldn't be doing what we're doing without you. If you'd like to make a gift of your own, just head over to our website, outtherepodcast.com, and click support. You can make a donation in any amount, even if it's just a dollar or two a month. That's it for this episode. Our Marketing and Business Development Director is Alex King. Our Advertising Coordinator is Jessica Taylor. Laura Johnston heads up our Ambassador Program. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, have a beautiful day. Be bold. Go outside. And find your dreams.